But Malcolm Honline, as we said, is in Israel. Malcolm Honline is the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update on this Friday. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, it's good to be with you from sunny, gorgeous, warm Jerusalem. It ain't warm over here. It's 12 degrees. Where you are, it's somewhere in the 60s. That's quite a difference. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> I, I'm glad I turned to you for weather analysis this morning. <laughs> that worked very well. But, yes, it's a vast difference, to say the least, uh, in terms of how you're uh, enjoying the weather and compared to what we're suffering with over here. Um I didn't realize, and I, I literally just saw this in in your daily alert that there's uh, that that this Israeli moon lander has passed its final test. It's going to be heading up into outer space on February the 18th. It has a a, a, um, a time capsule in it, a digital time capsule, and I believe I'm I'm almost sure I'm being serious now. I'm almost sure that at some point in this process, a year or two ago. Somebody from this team visited us at JM&AM and actually took an item of ours to be included on the flight. I don't, I don't remember if it was a bumper sticker or some type of memento. This, this is the one that we've been talking about for the last one or two years, correct? That's the one. This is it. And it's this... been talked about for actually much longer. It was part of the Google Challenge, you know, where they offered the $30 million prize, I think, and the five finalist countries, none of them made the deadline, which was March 2018, for a launch. Um, but Israel is still going ahead with the program. And uh, as you said, we'll have a launch in February from Florida, I think, and um, God willing, it will succeed. But the, the goal was that they had to have been positioned to land a uh, a rocket on the on the, uh, on the moon. Pretty amazing, I'll tell you. Whoever thought Israel would get to this level of but this became the basis for a lot of scientific education in Israel. The people supported it not just because of the competition, but because of the outgrowth based on the um, uh, you know the uh, science and all the inventions. People don't know that that were a result of the. Uh, a uh, space program in the United States and elsewhere. Um, everything from uh, eyeglass lenses to to all sorts of uh, medical devices and other things that came out of the research that went into the, the space program. Yeah, they, they always talk about aluminum foil and all that stuff that we ended up getting because of the uh, because of the development in the space program. Uh, so the IDF Search and Rescue Rescue Brigade has again proven to be a, an effective brigade in some area, other area of the world. You think they were appreciated down there in Brazil? Uh, they were very much appreciated. And as you know, Brazil has a new uh, President Bolsonaro, who is planning to come to Israel, by the way, um, in uh, not distant future, probably in March, maybe just the week before or so before the election. As you know, the Prime Minister attended his swearing-in, right. and the President, and especially his wife, are both very uh, pro-Israel figures. And so this is um, a great, great move, and, you know, it moved from a country that was completely against Israel to uh, whose government was not the people necessarily to uh, now a very different political situation. Yeah, we'll talk more about countries that traditionally were not really for Israel but are changing their minds in just a few minutes. First, let me ask you about the election. You know, I mean, you're in Israel. I really don't know if you if you get more of a feel, uh, you know, walking the streets, so to speak, uh, of of what's happening election wise. 
Uh, I think here, especially for people who normally pay careful attention to what's going on in Israel, it's been relatively quiet. There doesn't seem to be much activity, uh, uh, certainly not much talk about uh, the election compared to other campaigns. Uh, Could it be that to to many people around the world, it's just that there's a front runner and the election, therefore, is just not as interesting as it could be if things seemed closer, if things seemed that there wasn't this inevitability that the prime minister is going to win re-election? And and will this recent development uh, where it's been announced that this uh, indictment will likely come out before the election, is that going to stir things up a bit over there? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple answers to the questions you raised about the um, questions of the interest abroad. Uh, I know foreign leaders always ask me about, you know, what what to explain to them what the election is, and I told them nobody in Israel understands how could they, but I, I do tell them. But right now, it's internal. Right now, most of the action has been within the parties where they're selecting the lists and electing chair people, et cetera, deciding who will start new parties, which of the new parties will be able to get to the threshold, because if you don't make 5%, you know, you can't, you, you can't run. I mean, you can't get into Knesset, so those uh, votes are sort of wasted. Uh, so people are sensitive to it, and then you see somebody like uh, Yalon, who's going to run a party now, joining with uh, Gantz. Gantz was obviously the big news, his speech, the first public statement since he indicated he was running, I think, a month ago. Uh, got a lot of play, uh, mostly positive reviews. But the question is, how does he sustain that over a period of time? Right now, he he would be the second biggest party. And if he, according to papers, links up with Lapid, according to the current polls, which change dramatically over time generally, uh, they would um, be the first party. Right. Uh, as you know, the president has to choose which parties. And if Netanyahu was under indictment, he may well decide that somebody else should lead Likud, or somebody else should be given the nod to form the coalition if they have the wherewithal to do it. But uh, I think most people assume that barring um, some revelation or something beyond what they already know of the uh, indictments, that he will still be the, the lead party. The question is, can he put together 61 votes? Or can someone else? And and two months in Israeli or in any politics is a lifetime. And so many things can change. So it's, it's premature. The season has begun. The debates have begun. The accusations against one another are flying. So you do see a lot of that already. For this whole time. All right. So, you're, you, so you are seeing a lot of that typical Israeli election activity that where you are really not. You don't not- see the street signs, you know, which is what you're referring to about you know, but people, everybody's talking about it. Everybody, the the ferment is growing, and as it gets closer, will the BB? I think will be doing a lot of foreign travel. I understand he's going to India. He'll go to the Warsaw meeting, uh, which was supposed to be first anti-Iran, but now has a broader agenda, and to the Munich conference, which is a security conference in Germany, in mid-February. And he'll be speaking to the Conference of Presidents mission, but that's in Israel. Right. Uh, so I think he will continue doing his his job. I think it's probably the best platform for him to show his talents and try to show that he's accepted on the international scene and that he's a leader in the world community. And, and you're saying the indictment or the indictments probably won't have much of an effect on all this because of the you know the the the, the relative. Uh, 
um, familiarity that everyone already has with all these accusations, right? I mean, basically everyone knows what's going on. The question is, will there be a formal indictment or not? But I just wonder if the media or parts of the media are prepared that if it becomes official, if there's a real indictment, uh, to, to really put out a full-scale attack on him and whether that will matter. Like, In other words, I hear what you're saying, that you know most of the citizens know what's going on and the real indictment you know, probably will have little effect. But if the media decides or a segment of it decides to really use this as a platform to, to go at BB, it, it could alter things, no? Absolutely. Uh, one can anticipate that the media, actually left-to-center media, will go after him and demand that he uh, step down or step aside until the trial's over. Um, there's no requirement under the law for him to do it. I do, do not think he would do it under any circumstances. And they, they, I don't think they discount the charges, but, you know, they've been around so long, people are, are used to it. It's, there's, there's very little that would shock them now. Uh, the cigars and, and champagne thing they dismiss, that would not be the issue. It will be bribery, anything that could be attributed directly uh, to the prime minister. He would lose seats, there's no doubt, that right. it would have an impact but maybe not enough to, to take them out of first place. Only time will tell whether that will be the case. He ha- and and the, the, the Attorney General, by the way, said today that, that he can bring, he didn't say he will bring within the month of charges. One second. I, I thought we saw in a Jerusalem Post article that he had said explicitly that this will be done before the elections in April, that, they were, that it will for right. sure be. Yes, he, he did say that, but today's in some of the papers that I saw said that uh, that he absolutely can bring it, and I think his intention is not to hold up the bringing of the indictment right. and the announcement of it, but the as tr- Netanyahu has repeatedly requested. Right, but the truth is, as we discuss it, it, it would not be the craziest thing if he decided, you know, at a moment's notice that this isn't a good time to do it. I mean, that, that would not be shocking if he changed his mind on that, so... You know, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have to see what happens. Um, what, what does it mean that the Palestinian government resigned? I guess I really don't know how it works in terms of President Mahmoud Abbas and this cabinet that he has, and I guess government representatives that they have in some way. But the, the New York Times article basically says that uh, that that whole segment of the government is now no longer part of the PA government. Has there been a major change there? Uh, there's been a major change. In Hamdallah, the prime minister, resigned. Um, when you say you don't know the government, I don't think he uh, that Abbas himself knows very much. But he's in you know in the 14th year of his four-year term, so you know elections are few and far between. This is in preparation for parliamentary elections. He is going to try and create a government only a Fatah, knocking out the uh, Hamas and other groups from. Uh, the government. There will be protests. There will be uh, there could be hostilities even emerging from it. But right now, that it appears that he wants to solidify his control, and that not only in anticipation of negotiations at some point, but in consolidating the hold, which would really bring a greater rupture between Gaza and and the West Bank, and uh, perhaps you know, lead to, to the a reckoning on the part of the Hamas about their own leadership and um, creating the infrastructure that they would have separate negotiations, separate everything. Uh, Abbas, as you know, is elderly and has, to, I hope, is thinking about the future. 
This is still very much up in the air about what all of this will mean. There are a couple of PLO factions that have said we won't participate in a new PA uh, government. There are others that are um, still uh, unresolved. But as you know, many of the of the candidates have militia behind them. That, that it's uh, orderly transitions aren't always the the rule of the day there. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's of concern. It's interesting that at the same time, Israel is trying to work with the United States to continue funding for the military uh, security forces uh, of the PA. Why? Because of the cooperation between them and Israel continues, that uh, they are still coordinating and they're still working together. So it becomes so more burdensome. The fund could lead to a collapse so be- of the security forces. It becomes more burdensome on Israel when when there's no financial support from the United States for PA security? Well, if the PA security collapses, then Israel's army is going to have to pick it up. That means becoming the local police. That means having to go into places they don't want to go into. It has uh, a lot of implications that, uh, um, you know, for Israel that would have to fill. It's not because it's perfect. It's because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's the best arrangement we could get. And, the cooperation continues even during the time when they weren't all this time when they weren't talking. Right. They are still um, uh, working together, coordinating some of the raids, some of the approaches to search for criminals, etc. Is is it over? I mean, it's February first. Is it officially over? Has the U.S. pulled the funding, or is there still a chance that Israel can convince them to keep it going? I mean, the deadline was February first for it, right? For for that PA security money. Coming from the United States? No, the, the, no, the PA security money. Well, there's two two different things. One, you're talking about the Gaza money. Right. That was the one that was highly publicized, and that's the money from Qatar. That money has been paid, and a hundred thousand people supposedly get are supposed to get assistance out of those funds. They were initially rejected, then accepted, then rejected, and it went through various permute the permutations. But now that money is is there and is supposed supposed to be distributed. The money that we're talking about is money that Congress approves for uh, and allocates and and administration uh, appropriates to the Palestinian Security uh, Authority. And that money is going to – the United States and Israel are now discussing it because there was going to be a cutoff. The administration announced the cutoff. That's what I I think you were mentioning. But Israel is trying to see that the money be that money particularly, not the overall funds – which have been cut should be restored. Right. If you if the U.S. has already made a decision not to not to continue it, they still have an opportunity now in the this week to restore it if they wanted to. To restore the funding. Right. Okay. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSegal dot com on the NahumSegal network and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is with us. Remember. He is spending Pesach in Puerto Vallarta. And we invite everybody to call and get the information so that you could spend Pesach with him and a whole array of wonderful people with fine dining and a incredible program. Call 786-290-5919, 786-290-5919, or PesachInVallarta.com, PesachInVallarta.com. Are you telling me that Bibi had the power for the last 22 years to get rid of the uh, the uh, international observers in Chevron and just decided to do it now? Uh, I wasn't going to tell it to you, but yes. That, that's that's <laughs> <It's> insane. <true. laughs> 
I mean, you know that people have demanded it for a long time. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't the make sense. Which is, yeah, sorry. It doesn't make sense. Why would he? I mean, I understand that there's a campaign going on. He may have done this as a gesture to a certain crowd in Israel. That I understand. But I mean, if if the authority, the prime minister, would have allowed him to get rid of them years ago, because we know they're only there as a detriment. They, the result of their being there is a detriment to Israel. Why wouldn't he have done this long ago? Because it was mandated internationally, the UN involvement and you know the concern about the reaction. But I think uh, some people will say it's because of the election. Yeah. I don't want to be so cynical. The removal <laughs> of the TIPH. I'm sorry. I, I'm most laughing. A temporary international presence in Hebron. So right. people, because they use the initials, and everybody keeps asking me, "What does it stand for?" Right. There have been some very creative interpretations, but it stands for temporary <laughs> international presence in Hebron <laughs> for 22 years. <laughs> And it involves 64 international civilian observers, um, mostly Europeans, and they they have been patrolling in the area. But in most cases, they've been instigating the problems. We know that they have been uh, even engaged in some violent responses to to the people living to the Jews living there. They clearly resented their. Um, uh, presence and uh, have been accused of working w- on the delegitimization with delegitimization organizations and others, um, and so this was uh, a long-awaited uh, move, uh, something that has been demanded for a long time to remove them. They did not help the security situation. They're saying they made it uh, the worst yeah. and made it worse and. So now they have been removed by order of the prime minister. It was not renewed, let's say. It wasn't renewed. All right. Well, for whatever reason he did it, I'm glad he did it, frankly. Um, so I mentioned earlier that there are certain countries that are, uh, uh, or certain people that are concerned about Israel's relationship with certain countries, and one of them is the Arab League. They are watching as now Israel has 10 out of uh, 10 embassies in 54, out of 54 African countries, 10 embassies, and, of course, the recent visit to Chad and uh, welcoming other uh, uh, officials from Africa. So the Arab League looks at this and and what w- I mean will they will they try to penalize countries who have relations with Israel? Are they going to take any type of action? How will this play out? Uh, I couldn't hear the first part of what it went dead for a second there. Well I mean, there's a resentment among the official Arab League that Israel is infiltrating Africa. Nothing will play out. If you look at the attendance at the Arab League meeting, all the key guys did not show up. It was foreign ministers. There was no real outcome. Uh, I I would not be too concerned about the um, – and it's a play to the public, not to the the leadership – uh, look, there is still the sentiment. We know that there there is a sentiment, and we know that there are elements in the countries who are still pushing the BDS sanctions and other things who resent the co-op, growing cooperation uh, with Israel. Um, they, uh, but they also look at, at Iran and they look at some of the other threats at Turkey, and they all of a sudden rush back to, to Israel's side. So I would not uh, attribute too much um, to to this. There are some European countries that are also uh, anxious not to um, not to have their neighbors associated with Israel as well, and there's some European countries that are continuing the BDS effort, and some and some offering and in some cases passing legislation that's against Israel. Well, the, well they they are, and we, we should talk about that. But at first, about the money, the EU gave five point uh, six million dollars in addition to what each of the individual countries are giving 
to organizations supporting BDS. Wow. And the, so the crocodile tears about anti-Semitism ring very hollow to me when we see that they continue their anti-Israel activities and uh, fomenting what is essentially an anti-Semitic movement. And the apex is what you just re- alluded to in terms of Ireland and the decision of the parliament despite the fact that the government does not support it. And I spoke to government officials this week. We met with some. They, they do not support this, but they're a minority government, meaning that they have a minority in the parliament, even though they have the control of the of the key positions in government. They could delay this. There's a, there's a thing called the money issue, which, you know, you have to talk and analyze what is the financial implications. The government has also said they believe it's a violation of international their international agreements with the EU that uh, trade issues are an EU issue, not one for individual uh, uh, cunt- countries to to take. So the uh, exactly how fast that will be impacted it will impact. We don't know. But the very fact that they passed the, the legislation is a bad sign and one that could be replicated in, in other countries. And we hope the Irish community here and others who have dealings there will make it be known because Irish companies will not be able to do business in the United States if they are forced to comply with the, their anti-Israel uh, measure. They will be in violation of the anti-boycott laws of the United States. And, you know, you have a lot of high-tech companies that found Ireland as a tax haven all of them will be affected by this. So this is, this is far from a one, one-way one street, and this has been pointed out. We did two the top officials in, the, in Ireland, and, um, and as, again, as I said, the government in this case is not the target. There is uh, a particularly a small party, extremist party, that has been leading this charge uh, and able to secure a majority in both houses of the parliament now to, to pass it. It's, uh, it's very regrettable. It, it again, sets a precedent, would have implications. And Israel, Ireland trade is actually very significant. And there are many in Ireland who oppose it on those grounds as well. Has the minority government, have the minority, has the minority government's leaders made the, these statements public that they're against it? Yes. That you said they said it to you. I'm wondering if they've said it no, 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 they have said it. The foreign minister spoke out very strongly this week against it. Others have made it clear that they oppose it. They have tried to work with other groups to, uh, to to diminish the support for it. But they don't have a majority, so it became a vote against then against the government, too. Tell me about this infrastructure that's in Europe that's, uh, that's developing a way to continue to trade with Iran against the United States sanctions. Well, I mentioned the SBVs for some time that they were working on it, but they actually implemented this is a French, British, German initiative uh, to create uh, this vehicle where uh, the oil and gas exports of Iran, the sales, would be matched with purchases of EU goods. So nothing would be involving dollar transfers and uh, no SWIFT and not the, and the other things. Um, it would be the transfer would be through this Instex, which is um, a trade exchange. The text part is trade exchange, and it's in support of the trade exchange. Uh, it's a way to bypass the U.S. sanctions. The Europeans have said all along that they would. They're claiming that Iran is in compliance. Of some even American officials, but that's with the very letter. Certainly not the spirit. We know that they are doing many things. They just this week announced that they're shipping 30 tons of yellow cake to be enriched for. They said various purposes, domestic purposes, but of course, it's ridiculous. Uh, this amidst the time when they're cracking down, they arrested 7,000 people 
because it's the 40th anniversary of the revolution, and they're very concerned about this campaign of, uh, of reprisals and um, and uh, you know uh, arrests and and attempts to put down the people. Uh, for Iran, the uh, the sanctions are a very big issue. They're, they've diminished all of their uh, financial capabilities and capacities greatly. So this is a way to bypass. It will mostly affect small businesses. It will not affect the businesses because they're not going to risk not being able to do business in the United States for um, the contracts with uh, with Iran, and that's why we've seen them uh, fleeing uh, their their deals with Iran. So this is. I don't think the financial impact is going to be as great. But on the other hand, Europe can say they lived up to their end of the of the promises. Right, I got that. Uh, Elliot Engel, he's got some uh, he's got some trouble from some new members of the Foreign Affairs Committee, huh? I don't think so. I think he'll he'll be okay and in control. Um, there is uh, one particularly uh, one particular member of concern appointed by um, the speaker who makes the appointments to committees, but um, I think generally the the overwhelming presence of pro-Israel supportive people. This one congressperson, uh, um, Omar, will not be on the Middle East subcommittee. Again, it's, it's troubling. We'd rather not see you on that committee. But frankly, if you go to appropriations or any other committee, they can do equal damage. It's a question of educating them and, and reaching out to the members of Congress to isolate, to criticize, to do what needs to be done to say that association with anti-Semites, engaging in anti-Semitic comments, hostility towards Israel beyond having a political difference is not going to be acceptable. And there's a new group in the Democratic Party that was created and announced this week that whose intention is to strengthen the pro-Israel elements, which still are the majority in the Democratic Party, and to counter some of these extremist voices. Uh, I think this is uh, it's a very welcome and important uh, development. I got that, but if if a member is demanding, and I wish I could find the article this second, if a member is demanding that there be some type of congressional delegation to, Pal- to to Palestine or to the PA. No, that's somebody else. That's not I mean, a member of the committee. That's Tlaib who, who asked for congressional funding for CODEL, congressional delegation of official status. I don't think it'll be forthcoming. And she's not a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. No. No, no, no. The other headline maker. Omar is the member. Right. The other headline maker is. Okay. I'm sorry for confusing that. Uh, so we, we, uh, we started two weeks ago by saying Israel had declared there are no more tunnels. Then last week we said that that may not be the case, and now they actually have reported to the U.N. that there are some started tunnels that haven't actually infiltrated Israel yet that they're confident Hezbollah is responsible for, correct? Correct, and they are demanding that UNIFIL do more to, to stop them. UNIFIL has not done, as, as I think we discussed last week, anything to fill its mandate, which was under Resolution 1701 to bar the transfer of weapons into this area to keep Hamas, Hezbollah, I mean Hezbollah and terrorist entities out. They are, in fact, the dominant forces. And now, uh, related to this is the fact that the Lebanese government uh, has been formed under Saeed Hariri, uh, but the Hezbollah will be a significant part of the new government, which is being formed nine months after the election, because there were all these negotiations, and Hezbollah won a majority in the parliament, which has, I think, 128 or 130 seats, and the um, uh, and the Hezbollah is going to get ministries, including the health ministry, 
and this is uh, obviously uh, of great concern, but it, it solidifies then the answer to the question about what's different from the last Lebanese war, and that is that, the, that Hezbollah is part of the government and the governmental infrastructure. It's not a separate entity, and therefore the government has responsibility for it and, and accountability. If any action is taken, uh, Israel will not have to limit itself as it did in the past. There were officials of the Russian government in Jerusalem this week, right? There were two officials who came to keep up the coordination, according to the Russian officials, and to uh, talk about the, I mean, primarily about Syria, and uh, the Russians and uh, it wants to be, and Israelis want to be coordinated, at least in their responses to some of the dangers. The Iranians have been very critical of Russia this week for not firing the S three hundreds. So were some Syrians, um, but. Uh, the question is what will happen in the future when Iran has people who are control uh, who, who uh, of their own who will be put in control because they're training them. Uh, so it's a, it's a very fluid situation. Uh, and again, you see all the interrelationships of Iran's involvement, of Turkey's involvement, Hezbollah, Hamas, the flow of funds, why Israel has to act in Syria, why the Russian-Israeli cooperation is so essential. Uh, and the role of the U.S., and especially the the vote this week in the Senate, uh, what was 62 to 38, I think, or 20, no, 23, about the um, uh, against the president's withdrawal of our troops from Afghanistan and, and Syria. And the fact that Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, Republican, authored it and championed it is certainly significant. And it, it reflects, uh, you know, the, I think the sentiment, broad sentiment, that, that we can't just pull out, that leaving a vacuum, even of 2,000 troops, which is relatively um, small amount, but their presence there was very symbolic, very important also to block the transnational uh, gra- land grab by Iran through Iraq, Syria, and uh, Lebanon to the Mediterranean. So the um, you know that became uh, a highlight again focused on. Uh, so far, the United States has not withdrawn, and the uh, question is, what happens with our military? What happens to our air force base? Do we keep planes there? Do we keep an active force, even if it's smaller? What the the ultimate construct will look like will be very important and have broad ramifications. I think is there a um, is there any type of legal hold that this Senate vote has over the White House, or the president literally would just have to change his mind? Uh, no, I think the president can change his mind. I think that the um, you can come up with. I don't believe you can make really honest security arrangements with the Russians, the Turks, or Iran. They don't trust each other, and we certainly can't trust any of them. Uh, I can tell you the Kurds we met with this week are worried out of their minds. You know, others uh, look at this withdrawal and, and, and think back to a few years ago to American policy then. The concern is, is America withdrawing from its responsibilities in the Middle East? I don't believe that they uh, that's the intent, but the the perception becomes then the reality for many people. So the uh, and I think that that was the reflection of the Senate vote that that it's it's premature. Nobody wants to see American troops committed abroad. <clears throat> Nobody wants to see, God forbid, body bags coming back. But we we also have responsibilities, and American presence is is really critical. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, by the way, on the Russia thing, someone asked me this week, um, are Israel and Russia on the same page vis-a-vis Syria 
and Iran? I thought that was such a great question because it seems to change every – if someone asked you if Israel and Russia are on the same page vis-a-vis Syria and Iran, what would you answer? Is, is who on the same page vis-a-vis Iran and Syria? Israel and Russia. Is Israel and Russia on the same page? Uh, no. Uh, first of all, <laughs> well, that's why the two guys were there this week, was to help coordinate it. Look, I do think that the common interest is not to see Iran become dominant. Russia doesn't want to see it. Israel won't allow it. Absolutely can't see it. Uh, they may have, they have differences over the degree to which and the actions that have to be taken. But the fact is that Russia did not activate the S-300 or with their people. Um, I think that they have allowed Israel a lot of... Uh, free reign in, in going after and carrying out the attacks. So to that degree, yes, they have a common approach, common interests. Um, but the uh, Russia wants to maintain its permanent presence there. It, is, it has been successful in maneuvering itself into a position of having the Air Force base, the Army base, but they also look at the areas being taken over by the Iranians, replacing populations, expanding their influence, building up the militia. The last thing they want to see, I think, is Iran moving the, the Shiite crescent through Iraq and Syria, and uh, already in Beirut, as we talked about before. And, uh, and then there's another party, that's Turkey, which has its own set of interests, and the three of them have been meeting. I do not believe that they have a commonality of interest. Israel's interest is in protecting its border, preventing Iran from getting close, as its goal is. We, we, they talked about how many times Iran every day tries to try cyber espionage against Israel and, and cyber attacks, etc. That uh, the Iranians are also not uh, sitting quietly by. And the, the announcement about the, the yellow cake, the announcement that they can destroy Israel in three days, uh, you know, they're still trying to provoke, even regardless of whether you take it as seriously that they can do it. You can't dismiss uh, the, the threats and the fact that they are still growing their military and using the funds that they get for uh, the support of terrorism and their own uh, aspirations. And we see that in Venezuela, where Iran, you know, has a big presence and I think if Maduro is indeed overthrown, this will be a big blow to them and their activities, their massive activities throughout the continent, uh, although they have of, of late moved into com- countries, other countries, including Colombia and Panama. But the, um, um, the uh, you know, so Iran is pursuing its goals where it wants the four states, the, the tr- transnational Shiite crescent is very critical on their agenda. Their domestic situation continued to deteriorate, as we saw this week. There are now sinkholes appearing everywhere because of the depletion of water around Tehran. Uh, also, the um, economic conditions are deteriorating. I don't believe that the European lifeline through this new arrangement is going to help. So the, the question is, can they, will they continue to allocate this much money? I think Israel is trying to highlight the losses that they, uh, they have suffered and the cost that it has entailed for the Iranian people to know. And you saw it at the protests where they were yelling, we will not die for Gaza, we will not die for Hezbollah, we will die for Iran. And Amazing. it's a statement that they, they don't want to support these activities. Malcolm, as much as we're behind schedule, I must end with this because you're in Israel. During a school trip last week near Shiloh in the West Bank, quote-unquote, a boy found a 2,000-year-old coin from the Second Temple era rule of Herod Agrippa, the last king of Judea. Your reaction? 
as always, I think that if, if people can think that you can just walk, and, and because of the heavy rains also, they found uh, another family found uh, horses that were more than 2,000 years old designs, and we could, we could talk about this. But it's such an exciting and historic uh, find. Uh, I know that the Israel Antiquities Authority uh, was very excited about it, and it, and it shows that all these ex- uh, uh, examples, they're just popping up from the ground all of a sudden after thousands of years. Does anybody think it's just a coincidence? Does everybody think that it's just happening? Or do they see a much deeper significance to it? Yeah, think about that, everybody, and discuss it with your children and grandchildren over Shabbos. Yeah, discuss over Shabbos. By the way, Malcolm, I meant to ask you about grandchildren. Um, when visiting Israel, must a grandfather take grandchildren out to a very fancy restaurant, or is a mid-level restaurant sufficient? What is your opinion on this matter? <laughs> First of all, I don't know, we always have a choice, but the, uh, I think mid-level is fine. Comparing to Yeshiva food, they'll be very happy. <laughs> As long as you're together with them, right? That's the only important thing. Absolutely. <laughs> Have a wonderful Shabbos. Enjoy your Shalom. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. <laughs> Earlier in the before we went on the air this morning, I had uh, spoken to one of uh, Malcolm's grandsons and commented how uh, it's likely that he's eating better this week than typically, (laughs) as Malcolm's visiting Jerusalem. Anyway, Baruch Hashem.